the Triathlon Show 371. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and uh, this is the first episode of the new year of 2023, so happy new year. Today's episode, I have a roundup episode with segments from 11 of my personal favorite interviews from 2022. These are completely subjective and also they are in random order. And many of these episodes are uh, reflected in download numbers and listener feedback uh, as being uh, really popular amongst the listeners as well. Uh, not necessarily all of them. Uh, so again, these are just my personal favorites and the idea is to play anything from two to ten minutes from each of these interviews and uh, give you a reminder of these episodes if you already listened to them or if you missed them these segments can give you a taste for what the episode was like and if you want to go back and listen to the episode in full uh, either way the segments that i picked i think are all really really good segments and uh, so even if you have listened to the the episode i think that this will be a, a really good one to to get a bunch of highlights from these episodes and and get to remind yourself of some of the key points that uh, that some of the best guests on on the show have given in over the course of 2022 i will give a bit of an introduction to each segment that i picked and explain explain it or explain why i picked it introduce it in some way but first big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration they help athletes perform at their best through excellent electrolyte and fueling products and also through their free online tools and a patented sweat test as a salty sweater myself i love their highly concentrated ph 1500 electrolytes and i use their gels all the time to fuel my training and for me there's simply no other gels on the market that are as good as easy to consume they have a fairly neutral taste but uh, but still like kind of kind of sweet but very lightly sweet so i like it it's like a bit like candy but you don't get tired of it so when you do really long sessions you can still keep consuming 90 to 100 even more grams per hour of carbs and you don't uh, you don't really feel like it's an issue like you like i at least tend to do with a lot of the uh, a lot of the other gels on the market the the precision fuel gels are really the best ones that i've tried in that sense you can also use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website and you'll get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate, sodium and fluid intake and book a free 20 minute video consultation to chat through the plan with the athlete support team. And you can get 15% off your first order of the range of products by using the code TTS23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Form. Welcome to our new sponsor for this year, Form that produced the Form Smart Swim Goggles. I will probably record uh, some kind of mini episode in the next few weeks talking more about how I use the Form Goggles to improve my swim training. But in short, they give you real-time feedback in your swim training through a display on, display on the goggle lens so that you can see every split to stay on pace. You can see your stroke rate and even your heart rate if you use uh, the Polar Heart Rate Monitor. And you can analyze in-depth met metrics post-swim in the app, like distance per stroke, moving versus resting time, and so on. You can use a library of pre-existing workouts and plans and follow guided workouts, uh, or you can build your own workouts to follow as guided workouts. Personally, I don't actually do any of this. I just do free swims because I do really simple swims that I remember. But it is a cool feature for those that struggle to remember their swim workouts. And uh, you can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Welcome again to Form. I'm really excited to have them on board as a sponsor. 
Now, without any further ado, let's get into this roundup episode with the best of that triathlon show from 2022. So this first uh, clip is from uh, Tim Reed in episode 350. Uh, he is an Australian triathlon coach and former Ironman 7.3 world champion. This was a great training talk interview that I enjoyed a lot. And in the following clips, we will hear Tim discuss some of his main principles for swim, bike and run training, of course, in a triathlon context. Yeah, I think swimming is a really interesting one because... Um uh, even though we know that the sort of the, the basic principle of predominantly aerobic work to anaerobic works for endurance sports, I think a lot of athletes just jump into squads and they're, they're doing way too much anaerobic swimming. And the downside to that, you know, apart from just the physiological stress of turning up each day and smashing yourself, is they start to practice poor form in the water. And we know how important um, just making good technique autonomous is. And so one of the main things I work on with athletes, especially if I can see that they're not holding uh, relatively good technique in the water, is, is is actually getting them out of swim squads, if, especially if they can't control themselves or drop down a lane and, and have some a little bit of swallow, swallow their pride a little bit, is uh, bringing in a lot more aerobic training into the swim and treating it almost like I would treat the bike and run. Um, you know, and, and pretty much only having, you know, one to two really hard swims a week. And the rest is sort of in that very aerobic zone two range and, and working within that range to build the efficiency at, at a, you know, at a cellular level, but also just building efficiency with their technique because uh, I've seen it, seen it a lot and have been part of squads where, and I, where I uh, myself and many other athletes are just smoking yourself trying to trying to keep up with a you know three k's of threshold or two k's of threshold and and uh you get into a race and you're swimming worse than ever so i've seen some great improvement especially with um the third tier second tier and third tier pros that i take on which are sort of the professionals i prefer to take on anyway because i feel like there's a lot more to gain rather than someone who's already going on going really well um I've seen big changes in their swimming actually boot through pulling them back from doing too much anaerobic swimming. Uh, so that would, yeah, I mean, I guess that would sum up my swim approach. I, I get a lot of guys to do less squad swimming if they can't, unless the squads run really well where they do really um, take a polarised approach to the to their training. Yeah, cycling's um, complicated because it's such a strength endurance-based sport um, and so you have some athletes who have a, uh, a huge aerobic history and still aren't riding well, and, and you sort of have to look at it and go, well, what's holding them back here? Is it their aerobic efficiency or is it their straight-up strength endurance? And so there's certainly certainly with athletes who are newer to the sport who don't have that aerobic history, um, you know, the very traditional approach of a lot of aerobic training um, and then, you know, sprinkling in the higher-intensity work, is, you know, for the first five to six years of an athlete's, um, I guess, training career or training um, life, it's. I think that's super important. But when you get those athletes who just aren't putting it together, who have a huge aerobic history, uh, I, I take a more of a strength endurance approach. Um, sometimes a lot more gym work to try and build up, build up the, um, the straight up raw strength and power. Uh, so. Yeah, it's an individual approach. I don't think there's one one approach with cycling that will get um, get improvements. I think you've really got to look at okay, what's an athlete's 
weakness on the bike and what's holding them back. So uh, even, you know, throughout my own career as an age grouper, I think I had the, I was lucky to have a coach who was just very volume based. And then um, when I switched to someone like Matt Dixon, who was very much about uh, strength endurance and key intervals, I felt like the two combined to help me have a few really good years there on the bike. And um, so I try and, try and take that on and, and use that and, and try not to come to an athlete, you know, try not to approach the coaching on the bike with a, with a real one-size-fits-all approach, um, really try and work out where, what's lacking with the athlete. Yeah, so I, I, I don't like to be too volume-based on the bike, but I, I do think volume is important on the run in terms of people could be doing, to compare the two, you know, people could say, oh, I've been riding 800 kilometres a week and, in, in my mind, that doesn't really mean anything because, you know, you could be sitting behind a motorbike for a 200K ride and it takes you three hours or you could be sitting in a peloton, um, you know, in zone one, ticking along at 40 kilometres an hour. Whereas on the run, I feel like this this might be a bit controversial, but I don't feel like there's any – there's never junk mileage in that there's always a stress on the body no matter what pace you're going. It has to all be factored in and it's not the, it's not the worst measure of – the load that you're doing uh so if someone's even if a great runner is doing an easy run at five and a half minute kilometer pace it's still every time their foot hits the ground it's still their full body weight going through the leg and so um i do i I keep an eye on volume for sure and and certainly um trying to trying to get volume up to a point where it doesn't affect the cycling and swimming uh and is absorbable and showing benefits is is a pretty big part of how i would coach an athlete um and you know i think the other the other approach i take with it is to steer clear of uh chronic volume with with um, my triathletes so we might do you know a five to ten day running block but then we might back off for quite a bit and bring back the cycling um i find you know there's no doubt if you with especially with pros you if you can get up to that 90 100 kilometer a week run volume it's great but I find if you start doing it week in, week out, the cycling just you see the cycling really drop off. They start to sit too low in the water and in the swim. So uh, it's I try to steer clear of yeah a chronic style of run volume, but it is an important part of the training and having little blocks of of high volume running. I think really works. Um, but of course, again, that's very individual. You know, I have some pros who just can't get over eighty kilometers a week without getting injured and, and then some pros who are, who are just bulletproof and you can you can throw a lot of run mileage at them and they and they continue to improve so uh yeah i don't know how specific and, and, and 80 is quite a lot uh you, you would see a lot of pros that are doing significantly less than that on if at least if you look at it in terms of a you know <laughs> quarterly average or something like that it might be more 50k or 60k or even 40k in some in some cases 100 percent. i mean i say weekly mileage looking at their bigger weeks you know i probably if you averaged it out it would be a lot lower for many athletes and and some some athletes i mean depending on what they're good at too you know if they're if they've got a um if they're hugely aerobically efficient then you might be working more at you know higher intensity closer to higher lactate levels to sort of um you can get that that impact through the legs through faster running and if they're um you know not super aerobically efficient then you know sometimes you got to go the mileage route and really build up their sub threshold efficiency 
The next episode we'll hear from is, uh, or the next guest, which I should say, is Bex Milnes from episode 353. And uh, she is the coach of athletes like Nikki Bartlett and India Lee. And for a long time, she was the lead pair triathlon coach at British Triathlon's Performance Center in Loughborough. I'll play the corresponding clips of her thoughts on swim, bike, and run training, just like I did with Tim Reed. So, so this will be interesting for you to keep your ears open, both for similarities and differences between her and Tim's approach. work across trying to develop you know an aerobic underpinning an efficiency at first threshold and efficiency at second threshold and vo2 and that's kind of the, the 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 bones of swim bike and run um i think for they each then have different nuances in how you how you tackle that and again it, it can be quite individually led but swimming i think um some of the, the things that I consider is like just volume first and foremost, distribution of, of intensity. So the majority of the swim of swim programs that I set um, would have a large aerobic component, probably 70 to 80 percent of um, of the swim program that I would that I would set is is aerobic in structure. We may f- may focus on like open water skills elements of that or strength-based elements um but then um the kind of main energy systems that i I primarily focus on would be around that kind of second threshold or critical swim speed and vo2 um and that's that's predominantly where we spend most of most of the intensity that may flex a little bit through the year like earlier on um in winter um i tend to, to do a bit more of an anaerobic capacity stimulus or pure speed stimulus because um i find that kick starts into the vo2 quite nicely um but fundamentally it's the transferability to open water is the critical bit um and in order to swim open water well it's it's it, it comes down to efficiency but it comes down to kind of stroke rates being able to manage the conditions that you're swimming in um a, a strong technical underpinning and a, a tactical awareness. Um, so they're all elements which try to, you know, try to consider over the course of the year and prepare prepare athletes for really. But from a riding perspective, I, I similarly would um, intensity distribution would, would sit around eighty to twenty, so um, a fair bit of aerobic riding. But what I tend to focus on with the aerobic riding stuff. A little bit dependent on time of year, but um, particularly as we're in race season, I would prioritise like how how people are riding aerobically, and and, and what I mean by that is um, aerodynamic drills, focus on holding race position, um, a, a little bit of like tra- particularly on the longer distance side training for the demands of the course that you're doing. So if you're going to race a really hilly race, then I would certainly prescribe on on aerobic stuff, like just getting used to overgearing, getting used to um, working over the top of hills or, or whatever it is. Um, and then this is, this is probably where um, it varies a little bit depending on distance. But from a from a riding perspective, if you're racing seventy point three or or Ironman, then your first threshold has you have to be super efficient around that. And I would I would structure 
at least at least a session a week that focuses on on developing that. Um, and I think generally, if those sessions are done well and fueled well, the cost of them um, is relatively low for a session. Um, but it, that has to be a focus. And then a little bit depending on the the athlete engine and what what I'm working with, whether they're I, I kind of would would term it as like more of a Ferrari or a diesel. Um, would then determine kind of how um, how I then structure either a second session in the week or a second emphasis on cycling, whether I'd sit more of kind of like a a second threshold efficiency or a VO2. Um, but, yeah, I, te- I, I tend to, as a general rule, prescribe a couple of bike sessions in a week and then the rest is, is aerobic. Um, and as we get closer to the season, we'd structure brick sessions off off the back of either one of those aerobic rides or one of those uh, key key sessions um but i think yeah I, i'm big on riding riding in the position that you're racing in preparing for the specifics of the course that you're riding um and making sure you're as efficient efficient as possible um and that that is time on time on bike i think running for me is is the thing which is most individualized and um it's it's it comes from a place of what loads athletes can tolerate um so i find that running is the discipline which um leads to to most injury (laughs) um, and most time away from training so um again from a if you're looking at the longer distance side of things I, i would place a heavy emphasis on on that first first threshold um, and the efficiency around it, and obviously the shorter the distance you go, the more you're kind of um, trying to develop efficiency around second threshold, and, and VO2 plays plays more of a part. Um, but fundamentally, it, it's similar in terms of intensity distribution through through the week. But it, it depending on the individual and what they can tolerate, it may be more heavily weighted towards aerobic, um, and underpinned more by. Um, drills based uh work um and then again intensity of of a, a session as i would see it, it is is for me determined more by what the athlete can can tolerate um i think i've learned a lot around particularly working in para where the depending on impairment there's a lot more asymmetries that you're you're considering particularly around running load bearing you're dealing with run blades and how that impacts um movement quality uh load etc etc so yeah it's i i find running is um is a lot down to the individual and what they can tolerate um and so it becomes quite quite bespoke from there next we have dr mark burnley who was a repeat guest on the podcast in 2022 after already having been on uh, for the first time a couple of years ago this time we actually did a double episode with him so we had episodes 330 and 331 with uh, dr mark burnley the following clip is from episode 331 where one of the topics we discussed was on polarized training and a crosstalk article that mark and his colleagues wrote where they were arguing that polarized training is not the optimal training intensity distribution for endurance athletes and another group of researchers argued that it is in this clip we'll hear mark explain the arguments that they used to explain why in their view it is not the most optimal training intensity training intensity distribution 
Oh, well, the, the first and most obvious is that if you if you actually look at the time spent training, um, as opposed to because there's a there's a number of different ways in which you you work out your training intensity distribution. So there's the time in zone and there's the the total time spent training. When you look at we 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 were of the view that. If you go out and do a training session, you don't just pick the bits where you're actually working. You also have to do the kind of the bits where you're not working. And, and so you actually have the whole package because that is important. And when you do that, um, you end up you, you in any training session, you're going to cross all three zones, essentially. So to say that you're trying to minimize one of those three zones and the one in the middle seems to us to or seems to us to be be a bit strange but also when you look at the the time people actually spend training by and large elite athletes will do something that looks pyramidal so you'll do a lot of low intensity work so your most of your volume is low intensity then you have um, a smaller volume of zone two work so in the middle so the sweet spot work and then a smaller zone a smaller amount still of zone three work and one of the things that um, also kind of uh, got me going with this as well was that the previous intervention studies that had been done on polarized training had often, um, I, I would say, unfairly compared it to what they might call threshold training. So they'd have a situation where they do essentially your 80% in zone one, so moderate intensity work. And then 20% in zone three. So your, your intervals and your, your high intensity work and zero in zone, um, two, as opposed to doing nothing but zone two and a little bit of zone one and then no zone three at all. And my argument would be, I have yet to come across an, an endurance athlete or indeed any athlete who doesn't do any training above the critical power. That's, that's just not how people train at all. So that's not really a threshold training thing. Um, threshold training will also include zone three and some zone one as well. It's just that there's an emphasis on zone two, perhaps. There's also the fact that if you're not an elite athlete, you're not going to be achieving the same volumes that an elite athlete will. And therefore, you're probably going to be doing less zone one work anyway. And as a result, your, your training is going to gravitate more and more towards threshold training by definition because you're limited for time so you want to use that time efficiently so you'll tend to do higher intensity work and that's where where that comes from the other argument that i had was and this this is a more perhaps a more difficult one to explain but some of the reasons for using polarized training didn't make a lot of sense to me so there's this argument that if you do a lot of zone two training, that will be autonomically stressful. In other words, you'll increase adrenaline, your in and your and your markers of heart rate variability will change, indicating that you're overstressing yourself. And so that's why you might want to either avoid or minimize zone two work. And the evidence for that comes from a paper where and it's one of Stephen Siler's papers. It's a really nice paper, but it, it also actually illustrates that if you do zone two or zone three work, it has the same effect on these markers of stress. And so there's the, you can't really sustain the argument that you ought to avoid zone two if zone three does the same thing, because they're therefore equally stressful. Now, you might make the argument, well, if they're equally stressful, you get more bang for your buck in zone three, but you can't use the argument that you should avoid zone two because it's stressful if zone three does or has the same 
potential to overreach you, if you like. So there was that argument as well. The third one was that um, a lot of people advocate uh, moderate, moderate intensity continuous training is, is the, the, the phrase that's often used in the literature and um, in coaching circles as well, which implies zone one. But actually, when you look at the literature, there are very few training studies that have looked at the physiological adaptations to zone one training. Uh, most of the, the training studies which call themselves moderate and continuous are actually performed in zone two. So they're exercising at 60, 65, 70% of VO2 max in their continuous training. Well, that's for most people, and most of these people are, are undergraduate PE or sports science students. This is zone two. So you're, you're, you're using zone two adaptations to imply that zone one should be done and zone two should be ignored. So, um, what I, un what I noticed from that was that the, the polarized training literature, or at least the literature on which polarized training relies mechanistically, is actually quite messy. Um, and the other argument you sometimes get is that the if you do high intensity exercise, you get less angiogenesis, so you get less capillarization if you do high intensity work. And again, a lot of that work has been done from single leg exercise, which is a completely different intensity spectrum to doing whole body exercise. Um, and for that reason, I don't think there's a good, uh, there's, there's that much information out there that, that really tells you zone one is the thing to do. What I would, um, also suggest though, and this is something that this is speculation on my part, is that you also have to understand how big zone one is. In an elite athlete, zone one is a huge training zone because their lactate threshold is going to be higher than most other people because they're either they've got a lot of type one fibers or they've trained them up and their type two A fibers have been trained to, to behave more like type one fibers. And so their lactate threshold is going to be a very high proportion of their VO2 max, maybe 65, 70% VO2 max. And so that means that when they do upper end of zone one training, the actual flux through the muscle in terms of oxygen, in terms of blood flow and that kind of thing is going to be rather high. And that's going to produce its own angiogenic stimulus, which is going to be higher than somebody who doesn't have that high lactate threshold. So using elite athlete responses to training to infer that this kind of training is right for everybody ignores the volumes they're doing, but also ignores their exercise intensity domain structure, which may be very different from a recreational athlete, for example. So it's this classic thing of one size does not fit all. Um, that's where my kind of thinking was in terms of the potential limitations and, and if you like, over-interpretations of some of the polarized training literature. Next, we have Dr. Tim Podlegar from Slovenia. He may well be one of a handful of people in the world that knows more about carbohydrates in endurance sport than anyone else. So we had an entire long episode dedicated to the science and practice of carbohydrates in endurance sports. I'll play two clips from this interview. The first one about what to eat on race morning, where an important point that the team makes is related to making sure that you consume fructose to restore liver glycogen. And the second clip is about carb loading, which Tim thinks is best done just one day before the event. But of course, it's important then that you do it right. So you can hear about that in the following clips. If we are talking about like on the day, um, the main aim um, 
would probably be to replenish or fill up the um, both glycogen stores, um, so liver and the muscle. And I think this making a difference between the both uh, stores is really important. Why? Um, because during the night, we will not be using any muscle glycogen stores. Uh, whereas on the other hand, um, the brain is still working, the organs um, are still working, so we actually can reduce liver glycogen stores overnight. So the primary aim of the nutrition in the morning is basically to replenish liver glycogen stores. Um, and this is kind of important when we are talking about carbohydrates, um, especially the sources of carbohydrates. We've recently done a study uh, in which we um, gave people the same breakfast in terms of the quantity, but with different types of carbohydrates. So glucose or glucose and fructose. Um, the reason being that fructose we know needs to first go into the liver um, is metabolized there. Um, and because it goes first into the liver, it takes care of liver glycogen stores first. And in, in that study, we actually found that time to exhaustion or time to task failure in the subsequent exercise was uh, longer uh, when people got glucose and fructose as compared to glucose only. So in practical terms, this would probably mean like some sort of rice or um, porridge oats, um, and it'll come back to these two um, ingredients in a bit. Um, and then additionally, we want some sources of fructose, which is like honey, uh, some jam, um, some juices or anything like this. Most people recommend like multiple day um, glycogen um, loadings uh, protocols, like two days um, in advance of a race. I always go with just one day glycogen loading. Um, and the reason being that usually um, athletes also train the day before. Um, so they go for like one hour activation ride or one hour or two hour spin. Um, and based on the evidence, we know that uh, the more glycogen you have stored, the more you will use it. Um, so I see no sense or no point in like loading two days in advance when you will then just be using the lot of glycogen um, that uh, morning before the race. So I think it's like enough if you just do like that training session the day before very early in the morning um, and then use this stimulus um, for like replenishing of the glycogen after it um, so that you do like kind of a super compensation just after it and then you just eat like 12 10 to 12 grams per kilogram of body mass on the day um low little uh fats um moderate amount of protein and i think this works very well um there is probably enough time um to get the levels really high um and yeah from experience from my athletes um this works pretty well so far um and like even if we look at the professional cyclists, they don't have like two days between stages um, and they usually successfully recover in one day um, and probably get the glycogen levels um, topped up. Um, mm. And then it's also like the next question is the duration. Um, do we really need always um, to do glycogen loading? And I would say pretty much yes, uh, because we can like deplete glycogen stores in hour and a half to two hours. Um, like when we do in the labs glycogen depletion protocols, it's very funny to see 
um, that people last like an hour and a half to two hours and a half, and then they basically can't do any more. And this means they are glycogen depleted, and that's the cause of fatigue. Um, so you probably want to super compensate or like get glycogen levels stopped up uh, before any activities that are like, probably longer than 90 minutes, I would say. The previous clip with uh, Dr. Podlogar was from episode 354, by the way. I think I didn't mention it uh, earlier, but that was episode 354. And the next one is uh, Alan Murchison from episode 366. Uh, this is a very recent episode, so I may have some recency bias, but I think this was uh, one of, if not the most enjoyable conversations I had all year. And this episode also had a lot of listener engagement. Uh, there were many clips that were wor worthy of being included here. But the one I ended up choosing was probably the most important and, and definitely the most serious one that we discussed, uh, where Alan talks about the misplaced focus on weight and body compositions as body composition as key metrics for endurance performance. The other one, I think, and we touched on it earlier, metrics is measuring metrics. Now, I, I'm not a nerd. Um, you know, I'm not a particular nerd, but I think weight and body fat percentage is probably the metric that most people should be least concerned about. I've never seen anybody's body fat percentage on a result sheet um, any more than I've ever seen anybody's watts per kilo on a result sheet. It's irrelevant. And I would say, you know, again, you look at these amazing examples of of athletes that are, that are out there, and, and I think it's it borderlines. There's disordered eating across the board, and I think it's something – that, you know, there's been two cases of lately. And, and again, my, my attitude, and, and you need to stop me, Michael, if, if I'm talking out of hand here. I generally don't use social media or any platform to talk badly about other people. I think if you've got nothing nice to say, then you shouldn't say it at all. But there's a couple of cases of late that, that struck out to me that I thought were, were reckless talking about body part, fat percentage and weight because I think what you've got to look at is anybody who's in the public eye that's a professional athlete, as a professional athlete, you've almost got a duty of care to the people that are looking at you. There's sponsors, there's young athletes that look up to you. There's people that don't actually understand the requirements of elite athletes. And I think when people start talking about the body fat percentage and their weight, that's such an unimportant measurement when it comes to performance. I just think it's almost the, the least relevant because you and I know if, if you're going to have an athlete, not that matter whether it's Michael who wants to qualify for World 70.3 or somebody that wants to win the Olympics, the main key, the main thing that they're going to do is be able to absorb a high training volume, training load and consistency. Consistency, consistency, consistency. If you are constantly depleted or you are operating at such low body fat percentage that you're not robust, you're not able to absorb the training, you're not able to recover, you're not able to go out day after day, you're never going to achieve your goals. It doesn't matter whether you're Michael that works in an office or you're winning your third Olympics on the bounce. It ain't going to happen. And the two cases I want to talk about and lately, there was a, a husband of a, of a very famous athlete who said, oh, I'm at a race, I'm 4% body fat, you know, more than anybody that's racing here. What relevance is that of anything? You know, do you telling me that Christian Blumenfeld has stood on the start line and he's measuring his body fat? No, he's looked at how many hours he's logged. Yeah, it, it's completely and utterly irrelevant. And I just think that that uh, associating Associating your body fat percentage with success, what the success look like, is, is, is dangerous. I think it's irrelevant, to be perfectly honest, for most athletes. And then there was another one that absolutely killed me. That there was, a, a, again, I'm not going to name names. There was a, an athlete who's had a phenomenal season, won multiple, multiple big races. 
and they put out on social media. Now, bear in mind on Instagram, this athlete's got over 500,000 followers, all right? That's a big reach that they'd lost three and a half kilos and they're now ready to race. Now, I'm guesstimating that's probably six to 8% of this athlete's body weight. That's what they'd lost. So they'd associated losing three and a half kilos as being ready to race. That's reckless. That's absolutely reckless. And at that point, the sponsors of that athlete want to get on the phone and say, hey, 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 this kid's looking at this. You know, there's athletes doing it. That is dangerous. Now, this athlete might have done it correctly. They might have been doing it for 10 years. They might have measured it. But that was the headline news for it. I just think that that's – but you also then look at the top end of the sport, the PTO, right? So the PTO have done some brilliant things to put on races during – lockdown they've got you know athlete welfare at the forefront you know there's maternity pay there's all sorts of stuff going on you and i michael we're sat on our sofa with our big mac relaxing and we are watching the pto race what flashes up this athlete and what's a metric that they've got on the athlete as it comes up on the screen the athlete's weight yeah seriously the athletes they want to say oi, 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 why is my weight on there because it's not it, it's not a measurement of of me as a person it's not a weight a measurement of my shape and if you go onto pto website which which i did the other day just to make sure i knew what i was talking about there's only three female athletes in the top 10 that actually don't have their weight on on the pto website do you know who they are the three best performing athletes well not you could say ashley dental's got hers on there and she's been amazing so and, I, and i'm not again i'm not divulging cat matthews who, for me, if she hadn't had her accident, would have won Kona. Chelsea Sodaro and Taylor Nib haven't got the weight on there. Why have the rest of them got on there? If somebody from the PTA asked me my weight, I'd say, why? It's not, a, it's not a judgment of where I am. So I think that that is something that's really dangerous in elite sport. And I said, if you're looking into it, honestly, I would be more concerned about how many sessions in your 12, 14, 16-week training block did you fuel correctly? How many hours sleep did you get? How many hours did you spend training a position? How many swim drills you do? Any metric you want, but going on, you've lost X amount of kilos, you're ready to race, or you're at 6% body fat. Seriously, do yourself a favor and don't worry about it. That's dangerous. And that's something that is a bad thing about elite sport. There's an obsession with weight. Next on the list is uh, coach Glenn Poleonis from Belgium. Uh, he was on in episode 335 and uh, he has a high performance squad based in Girona, mostly focused on short course racing. I really enjoyed this interview because Glenn was really specific with his answers and explaining why he does things the way he does them. He was great at giving examples and when saying things like it depends, then he uh, went on to explain what it depends on and how it depends and uh, those are all things that I really really like when when people do that uh, because uh, training and coaching that can be quite abstract uh, so but yeah glenn was really great at describing uh, things uh, in a specific way and in a clear way so the first clip that we will hear next uh, is glenn describing his approach to periodization and then secondly we will hear what the volume and intensity looks like in the training of his athletes Uh, in general, it's like uh, I always work like with a big base phase. Uh, it can be longer for one athlete, depending on how long the winter is, of course. Eh? If they start early, it's always minimum eight weeks, I think, for also for neuromuscular adaptations and on, on the cardiovascular level, if we want adaptations, it's really like a minimum, I think. And then we, sometimes if the season starts early, we go more into like a, a, a specific phase, uh, not really specific, more like a build phase where we do a bit more like already tempo work big gear work yeah and then we we switch uh, switch to the specific phase where we like really 
yeah, go to the trying to meet the race demands based on the individual profile, of course. And I always like try to have like an within the season, always like keep on repeating these phases as well. Not make the specific phase too long because the overall goal is always to like keep on improving over time. And if you like keep on going too long in uh, too many races with too much specific work, yeah, you can just maybe hold on to your level and not keep on improving. And I think that's one of the basic philosophies that sometimes in the season we have like a, a bigger period off again and we repeat this base phase again and to make sure we can keep on improving over time. Well, yeah, it depends a little bit on the anaerobic profile versus aerobic profile and uh, the muscle fiber typology, I think, as well, I really look into. Also, boys versus girls, I am always a bit more careful with the girls um, and do a bit maybe for, a, for, especially for the run, I do a bit more strength work with the girls, I think, and a bit less volume and make sure that I really, I can keep on progressing in volume and intensity over time, not going too fast too soon. Um, yeah, and volume wise in general, I, I really believe in quite high volume, uh, chronicle volume, like, and then taper off at the right moment. Um, but that volume is like really different for like the older athletes versus the younger athletes. And if you want some numbers, for example, like, uh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking so. Like, I think in general with the elites, we are like quite regularly around 30 hours a week. Um, so very consistent in the build phase and the base phase. So it's quite a lot of volume. Uh, it's divided maybe in five to six swims with six hour swim. Um, yeah. And bike numbers up to 15 hours running around 100 K for the very elite. So, and it's always a bit individual, like some focus a little bit more on the swim, some a bit more on the run. I'm not really into like bike or run weeks. I try to keep it quite consistent in overtime in all three disciplines because I always think it's like always injury prevention wise also very interesting to not to have many big fluctuations in the volumes. Um, yeah, and it, it helps to build like uh, a big engine, I think, aerobically and also like to have your loads um, yeah, really attenuated over time. I think it's very important. So, yeah. yeah. And and what is, uh, especially when you're in like a build phase or even a specific phase, how how much intensity would you have in in those weeks? Or do you have yeah. a typical like two hard swims, two hard bikes, two hard runs? Or is there anything, anything, any patterns like that that you use in terms of the intensity? Yeah, I think intensity wise, it's like in the run, you can say it's quite typical. We always do like two harder runs and the rest is like build up a volume around two specific sessions. So it's really not for athlete, never more than two hard runs um, in the bike. Um, yeah, I think now when we go like, for example, with Martin in the 70.3, we did a bit more emphasis on the bike. And maybe we did like three times, like a bit more specific work on the bike, for example, um, and in the swim, I really like to keep the intensity quite high, quite high. Um, that doesn't mean like brutal workouts, not at all. Let's say if you want to put it in numbers, we have like two specific workouts, but like even regeneration sessions, we can do like little sprints to keep like the, the speed in. Um, and so it's, it can be like four workouts with a little bit of intensity in, but not like very brutal. So, mm. um, yeah, it's not really fixed. Um, I, only our track Tuesday maybe in the specific phase like uh, I think many athletes have like two fixed days for the run are quite fixed but in general it's really yeah 
not so determined in advance how many intensity we do in which discipline no? yeah yeah mm. and what about uh recovery do you uh do you have any kind of down weeks deload weeks or do you work on a consistent yeah, schedule course. yeah so but it is what you call a down week of course eh? like uh it's always like the athletes who do like 30 hours a week um on a regular base then the down week might be 21 22 hours you know and it's yep. like still a lot for other athletes and if i have young athletes who are doing like consistent 23 to 24 hours then a down week might be 16 to 80 hour, 18 hours um but i like to keep the consistency in the three sports as well even in the down weeks just shorter sessions not too long maybe one complete rest day um not too many rest days in general um so yeah it's really depending on what is your basic volume in yeah. in the other weeks. Yeah. And how, how often do you have these down weeks? Um, sometimes with young athletes, it's more like a 2-1 ratio. But often with the elite, elite athletes, it's more like a 3-1 um, like, like type of coordination of the down weeks. So it's like uh, depending a bit on the level as well. Yeah. And, and within a week, uh, the, the micro cycle of, of a week, do you have a day or a couple of days that are lighter generally or maybe that is just swimming how yeah yeah so um in general like on an easy day we do even a few sessions Uh, so it could be like on a monday after a bigger weekend because sometimes it's easier for the non-professionals to do more work in the weekends we do like an easy swim and then it depends like they do like a little jog and gym work that's then the easy day and then like for the other people it might even be like swim uh, gym and like do a two-hour easy bike ride on an easy day uh, it's always looking at what the athlete really wants to do as well i think on these days some really like to ride their bike and they really get recovered mentally as well of doing a two-hour coffee ride with friends and then i would also take that into account and uh, yeah look at the overall volume that we're not doing too much and some people like to spread it a little bit more out and sometimes i feel i have athletes especially the the more anaerobic athletes sometimes they they really need like a big afternoon off or we just do an easy swim in the morning and that's it and they get more recovered by doing completely nothing for maybe 20 hours you know next we have paulo sosa who was on in episode 360 he is a portuguese coach and a pioneer in setting up a private triathlon squad outside of the control of national federation federations uh, his athletes have over the years gone on to have really great success so the squad has in many ways been a model for other squads that have followed uh, also uh, i should mention because a lot of uh, you guys probably follow paula finlay and eric lagerstrom paulo is their coach as well and uh, that has obviously been a very successful coaching relationship and continues to be so uh, in the clips that we'll hear from paulo's interview he first answers the question on what new athletes to his squad might experience as being different compared to what they have been used to before and secondly he describes uh, some of the typical characteristics of his coaching methods and uh, I also want to add that I was lucky enough to spend a weekend in the south of Portugal with Paulo and his squad uh, a few weeks after doing this interview. So that was a great experience for me. Big thanks to, uh, to Paulo for allowing that. Yeah, I think, like, I, like you said, uh, experiences are very individual and, uh, and dependent on the, on the environment that, that, they, were, that they were in uh, before. Uh, I think the biggest strength that our environment has is that uh, we are able to uh, maintain like the 
maintain the drama to a to a low level and being able to just really really focus on really really focus on the work and 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 improvement and performance uh i feel that like uh, other squads other environments that a lot of the times uh there's too much of a high school environment that that's we work very hard to curtail or to diminish so that we are able to focus on the day-to-day work in terms of training um i feel that the biggest thing that i see is that uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of programs a lot of training programs uh out there in world triathlon that are very intensity focused and uh and and i get a lot of athletes that are used to doing a lot more intensity uh and and they are also like burned out by intensity meaning that uh uh they lack a real like endurance they lack real endurance to approach the kind of races that uh, that we race at and uh and i feel that there's a lot of coaches out there that uh that uh because triathlon is not a sport that's as established and as like the traditional sports. Uh, I feel that there's a lot of uh, coaches out there that are still working to find their own system, their own formula. And they, and they end up having programs that have way too much intensity and the athletes, when they come to the squad, end up having, there's this clash in philosophies where they, they're used to just doing a lot more intensity uh, less volume and and also the impact that those high intensity programs had on their bodies uh, throughout the years makes a big big difference in their performance now and adapting to our training now. In terms of like training philosophy, I wouldn't say like, well, I'm a volume guy that does uh, a little bit of intensity. My approach is like polarized. Um, it. I wouldn't say something like that. It's more that we have a way of doing things that uh, it's more a question of like execution and how we operate on the day-to-day and less about the training content and what we do. And also adjust things based on, on, on athlete, uh, uh, on athlete, uh, on athlete feedback. In general terms, I would say that like some, uh, philosophies in endurance training that I am more that I'm closer to uh, would be would be for example uh, polarized training or whatever you want to call it. Uh, even though, like lately, it seems that everything is polarized training. But uh, yeah, but uh, but I would say that like I am closer to a polarized approach than other approaches. But but for example, like in the last two seasons. Uh, we've been doing uh, a lot of uh, uh, fat max training on the bike, or uh, or uh, Ingebrigtsen uh, training on the run, and those concepts are definitely not uh, not polarized training. And uh, so, I feel that, like in terms of training philosophy, I would say that like flexibility on the approach, and also. Uh, have training that I feel that either by the specific content that it's got or 
by the personal preference that athletes have for it, I will then like choose that. So instead of like being in a box where like, this is what we do, this is our approach. Uh, I think that more individuals and specificity are going to be the key factors in, in, in the overall training philosophy. Next up is Owen Everard from episode 336. Uh, Owen is a physiotherapist from Ireland, and uh, this episode was a really great one on injury prevention, uh, also with strength training, a lot of strength training discussions, which is part of injury prevention, of course, uh, but also uh, performance benefits and whatnot. And we also discussed running biomechanics in, in some detail. In the following clip, uh, Owen discusses uh, some key principles for av avoiding injuries. So this is a really great uh, tidbit that hopefully will be really useful for you so you can have a great injury-free 2023. Yeah, I think, I think as we said, like the key things, the first one would be variation. I think that's why like coaches like the scientific triathlon are so important, not just physiologically to make sure that you get the most out of the training you're doing but also from an injury perspective i find that people that don't have a coach um tend to just revert to the same type of training or um a major mistake i find that um that say novice triathletes can do is just constantly doing the same training like they might just go out for the same run or do the same cycle or and what happens there is there's no variety so this the same type of tissue is getting bro uh, overloaded and the same joint range is getting uh, moved into. So it's really important that you're bearing up your training, like having some threshold work in there, some intervals, say some long running. And we'll, we'll come back to that as well. You know, changing your surface, changing your shoes you have sometimes. Um, one thing I really recommend for people is like running strides. I like uphill strides. I'm on a slight incline. Um, and I recommend those for several reasons. One or two I'll, I'll talk about later, but uh, the main reason is that it increases the amount of range of motion that you're doing. And that's like a joint, if you can imagine it having like, it's synovial fluid, but if you can think of like oil fluid, uh, oil on your chain of your bike, it's like by moving the joint through the range of motion, by lengthening out those muscles, that allows the joint to move healthily, which which really helps. The second thing, as we said, was it's the passive structures getting overloaded because the muscular system has got lazy, essentially. So you need to wake that up. And how you do that is to strengthen the muscles. That can either be done through like sports pilates, um, where you get the muscles really burning, or to gym work. And I know um, listening to your previous podcasts, you be an advocate of that as well. And again, of lifting heavy, like don't be afraid of DOMS initially or progressing what you're doing. Like when we're doing the Pilates, you're getting the muscles to burn. And it can be a bit of a shock for triathletes initially because they're not used to, you know, they're like, they're, they're not used to really working or going to a gym and, and starting to lift. But I'm like, you're sitting eight to 10 hours a day It's going to take more than a 30-second stretch to rebalance your body. It takes, like, you know, we do. I do Pilates maybe once per week is your minimum. But it takes, like, a good 45 minutes once a week or maybe 20 minutes splats uh, 
two or three times a week and really burn the muscles. You got to wake these things up. They are lazy. They are lazy, lazy, lazy. So you need to wake these up. And it's like, oh, why did it get lazy? It's like you sit 10 hours a day. It's not a stretch that's going to get you out of that. It's not I stretch my glute, you know, um, bring the leg over and I wonder why it's it's not kicking in. It's really activating those muscles, um, you know, to get them burning, as I said. And then that allows them because then once they're primed, essentially, because you've innervated them, you've excited them. When you're running then, or even when we're like swimming or whatever, you're getting those stabilizer muscles, much, they're much more activated. So they're much more ready to be able to take the load. It's like having a guy asleep and you're doing all the work. Say that's our passive system. It's like if you wake him up and he's like on caffeine, he's just there naturally going to be like, oh, here, I'll lend a hand. Um, so that would be the second thing, really strengthening the muscles. And that takes, if you could do that, as you said, all the injuries that triathletes get will be passive injuries. It's very rare. If it is even a muscle strain, it's not because you strain the muscle. It's most likely like, say, an SI joint or something is is caught and the muscle is kind of just being overloaded again as opposed to a tear. Um, just thinking about some of the exercises, if you want, we can go before. Let's go for the next yep. uh, Next point there. The first one I think is really good is the single leg deadlift. So what that is, you stand on one leg. I slightly bend the knee on the leg I'm standing on and you bring the other leg back as far as you can. So like a pendulum. Now you want to keep the leg that's lifting and your body in a line. And it's a, the key faults I see with that. As soon as the back leg stops lifting, stop lowering your body. So initially you might be only like, 10 or 20 degrees off off vertical that's fine it's better that than people like fold in their back and they're not going to get it in the position why i really like the single leg deadlift it really works all the posterior chain which have a tendency to uh, weaken and it works on balance and it works in that like standing position so single leg deadlifts again i would do um sets of five five seconds holding for like sets of, or sorry, reps of 10 and maybe three sets. And again, you should be burning. Like I, I can't em- overemphasize how do you know when to stop when your leg is on fire and you shake out the leg. Like anyone who has any calf injuries, shin or Achilles, I can't recommend that exercise enough. A lot of times people do heel drops, heel raises, um, which are fine in certain cases, but a lot of times the calf, again, because the range of motion and the knee lift isn't there for people um, when they run, the calf is overloaded. So a lot of times what we try to do is strengthen an overloaded area rather than get the other areas working to take take load off that area. You know, It's the same at the knee. A lot of times we're doing excessive amounts of squats or lunges, which are fine for appropriate load, but make sure that the other parts of the chain are strong. 
Next, we have a clip from my interview with Erin Carson in episode 367. Uh, another very recent one, but I really loved this episode and Erin's wealth of knowledge uh, was something that I yeah, tried to really soak up. She's really good at explaining how and why she does things the way she does them. So uh, even though you probably listened to this one quite recently, I think it's worth including here because for me, it was definitely one of the highlights of the year. Uh, in the clip that you'll hear, Erin takes us through what a typical session in the gym looks like for her athletes. And uh, I don't think in the clip she says it because I think it is earlier in the episode. But uh, for context, when her athletes go to the gym, they are there for no longer than 45 minutes. Erin uh, figured that's, uh, well, it's not good use of time. So uh, keep in mind that for the context of, context of the following workout, it would take 45 minutes or less to do all of the things that she goes through. Typical 45-minute session um, will always start with some movement, um, mobility that is geared towards undoing some of the tightness that naturally comes from swim, bike, run. So tight pecs, tight hips, tight ankles. So we'll move and we'll look for a high quality of, of movement. We want that really softness in their movement. We want flow. Um, if we don't see that, if I don't see that, We'll take more time for that mobility. We'll take more time for tissue care. Some athletes enjoy foam rolling. Some don't. Some athletes like the massage gun. Some don't. So I'm not partial to anything. We just kind of give each athlete the opportunity to experience each modality that we would use for tissue care and then hope that they really resonate with one. So whenever I come in, I don't direct the first five or six minutes of the session. I just kind of see what the athlete chooses. Because it's interesting. Some of them are so set in their ways that they'll choose the same thing every time, even if they don't have the intuition yet to say, mm, I don't need to do that. Like I'm looking to see, does the athlete come in and always go, oh, I'm going to foam roll my lower leg. Now I'm going to foam roll my hips. Now I'm going to foam roll my upper back. That athlete is very regimented and I might guide that athlete a little bit more and try and uh, throw some curveballs at them and say, don't do that today. Do this first. And it freaks them out to do something else first. Um, I've had a couple of those in the past. Um, don't have any of those right now. And usually an athlete will show me exactly where they need more motion because if they come in and stick that foam roller in their armpit and lay sideways on it, I would say that their thoracic spine is, is feeling tight. They're seeking more motion there. Um, and they didn't say, I think I'm not moving well. They just intuitively went there. Um, if they sit on the foam roller and put their right foot on their left knee and just start moving through their hips, I know that they've been working their butt off <laughs> and their hips need to maybe be open a little bit more. So I will really watch that first five or 10 minutes to see where I think the session needs to go in addition to whatever I got planned. But the most important thing is mobility first, then we'll do some light loading to enhance mobility and bring up that motor unit recruitment and just just make sure everybody's in the game. And as I describe movement and what a, loading... What does light loading mean here in this uh, I might use a 10-pound weight that has no representation of percentage of one rep max. It has no reason other than it's 10 pounds. And when you reach that across to your knee, it's going to give you a little bit more inertia to open up some more tissue. Um, I typically don't look at muscle. I look at movement. I train the fascial system and the connective tissue. And I, I see the muscles within these little bundles of fascia. 
So instead of training the quads, I'm training the whole lower body. And instead of training the hamstrings, I'm training the whole back line of the body. So a lot of that learning from me came from a a book called uh, Anatomy Trains, written by a, a gentleman named Thomas Myers. And uh, in Boulder, we have the Structural Integration Institute in Rolfing. And when people get stuck in movement, the fascial system typically and the nervous system shuts that movement down. And those people are so beautifully trained to enhance movement by working with the fascial system. And uh, that's we've been very fortunate to have time to learn from Thomas Myers and understand movement and how we can strengthen movement and build trust with the nervous system so that the body can actually move better. So there's lots of layers um, to, to how I approach uh, performance and strength yeah. and conditioning. But that part with the light loading, it's, it's uh, some sort, it's dynamic, dynamic movements yep. designed to just, yeah, facilitate. Better Enhance movement. movement. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And, Absolutely. And then what's the next part? And then we're going to get under load with the muscles that might have become inhibited because of tightness. So if there's tightness, like that's why everybody loves to talk about glute function. So I definitely want upper back function, scapular stabilization, um, glute function, ankle mobility. If the foot and ankle are not moving well, the glutes will not fire well. So we need to make sure the foot and ankle are moving well. We use a lot of balance boards. Um, uh, I think most of, some of your listeners might have heard of a MOBO board. Um, M-O-B-O board. Um, one of our friends, uh, Jay Deshari invented that. Um, Jay wrote a book called Anatomy for Runners. Um, we have a nice community that supports each other. And the mobile board is a big part of the work that we do, which enhances big the loading of the big toe and uh, how that plays to make sure an athlete is loading their big toe. It's really important. Hmm. And that just clicks on up the chain to make sure that uh, your body is stable and strong. Yeah. And, uh, and is that the end of the session or is there another part after that? Well, then we're going to get into strength and it's, it, that's the irony of it all, right? So you're a strength coach, but that's the last thing you get to. <laughs> and so, but that, if, sorry, if, that, that previous part, you still want to do it under load. So you still use some weights, at least depending on yes. what the issues are. Okay. 100%. Yep. yep. So the heavier loading strategies, definitely enhance uh, the hormonal profile of the athletes. And as the athletes get a little bit older and get into their thirties and maybe even into their forties, that heavier loading strategy becomes part of the hormonal profile. And I think as we know, endurance athletes sometimes might struggle with a hormonal profile that skews a little bit to lower testosterone and that, that challenges the athlete's ability to recover. Um, It might challenge their mood Um, it might challenge a lot of other things. So we look at using heavy load and building technique and skill with under heavier loads to ensure that our athletes can use some physical challenges to help all the systems of the body, a mental, emotional, uh, health as well. How, what, what would that part of the session look like? Do you have two, three, four exercises and you do how many how many sets of each and reps so so each athlete would will will resonate towards uh two or three heavy lifts that we want those athletes to get very good at the hex bar deadlift is is very accessible to a lot of people it's it's very low risk i'm very risk averse so anytime you put an athlete under load 
um, you're, you're putting them at risk. So you better make sure that they're in really good physical uh, preparation for those lifts. Um, so most of my athletes are very good at the hex bar deadlift, and we can use that as one of their heavy lift. Some of them are more comfortable um, with a goblet front squat. So they're going to put the, the dumbbell or the kettlebell on the front side of their body. I only back squat one athlete. And uh, that's because she grew up back squatting and she does it very, very well. And I, I, I have back squatted actually Jeannie Seymour as well. But uh, Rinny is a great back squatter. She's the only athlete that I back squat. But the, the spinal, the, 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 the uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say kyphosis, but spinal flexion that we experience on the bicycle. So that little bit of rounded spine. Um, and the tightness on the front side of the body sometimes will make it very difficult for an endurance athlete to get under a back squat. And I find that that puts that, that risk profile is just too high for me. So I am a front squatter through and through. Um, we can do an Olympic bar on the front side of the body, but there are some athletes that are very uncomfortable in that position. So we're going to deadlift. We're going to front squat. Um, we're going to do a lot of high pull down exercises, um, either a lap pull down or, or something similar. Um, a single arm shoulder press is something that, uh, we get under, but we very, very rarely will bilaterally, uh, press overhead. Um, just because why risk a shoulder that doesn't really help them as much. Um, so single arm presses allow you to rotate and elevate one shoulder or the rib cage if you want. Um, and bent over rows, heavy bent over rows, single, single leg, double leg, um, supported, unsupported. We do a lot of rowing. So each athlete has their three or four lifts that we, when we want to get them under load, it's low neural demand because they've become so good at it. So the neural challenge is, is low. I just say, we're going to row today, double arm, single arm, whatever it is. They're, they're not freaked out by it. They don't have to use much energy to, to get in, in there and do it. Next up is an interview with UK-based cycling coach Tom Bell from episode 356. Uh, this interview, I think, was a great example of somebody who is really good uh, at understanding training science, physiology, but at the same time is very much grounded in practice and uh, doesn't let themselves get shackled by the science. And of course, this can be said for many others on this list as well. But I think in the interview with Tom, it really stood out to me, uh, maybe more so than in, in most interviews that I've done this this past year. So we'll hear two short clips, one on uh, training progression, which is a question I think I should ask more coaches uh, because it's a really interesting one and I really don't have a huge database of, of database of answers to this one like I do with some other questions. And uh, the second topic that we will hear about is recovery, which uh, Tom discusses being one of the main things that changes for a lot of athletes when they start working with Tom. Yeah, I think uh, I think early on, sometimes you you get into the trap of trying to make the training a little bit too varied and uh, you know change sort of every week, which has its advantages. That, you know, it keeps things fresh for the athlete, it gives them sort of new challenges. Um, but I think repeating, if if you kind of take the idea that there are only going to be a certain amount of workouts that um, you know that, that are optimal for that athlete and what they're working on at that point in time. I do think it's um, it's very useful to actually repeat the same kind of workout design, you know, for for a period of time, so you have that more uh, direct comparison that you can apply. Um, 
In terms of how we then go about um, progressing those workouts, I think sometimes you can fall into the trap of arbitrarily um, adding a certain amount of, uh, let's say, uh, repeats to a to a single interval um, to, 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 a, to a set of intervals, or if you uh, maybe performing some sort of over under style interval blocks, you know, you might add a couple more. Um, you, you know, micro components to those. Um, but, but that is fairly arbitrary, you know, who's to say whether adding two, two repeats is, is, is the right thing to do. So often the way we approach it is, you know, we'll have them, uh, perform the sort of first one, first session, that uh, first new session. Uh, and then the, the, going forward from there, we'll sort of say, okay, and repeat the same, re- repeat the same interval protocol. And then, at the in the final interval um just just go a little bit longer and just go to that point where it feels like you know you're 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 pushing to a level where you're you're working hard but there's there's a little bit left and then you can essentially let the athlete find you know their the, the right level of progression and not sort of impose that fairly arbitrarily from from the coach side yeah i think um quite often the most common thing is that quite a lot of motivated athletes don't have a don't have an issue with training enough it's you know getting them to to rest and recover and actually sort of adapt to the training so i think a lot of people kind of direct their attention to their training capacity so maybe how many hours they have for training um but but don't really sort of turn the turn the lens around and look at their recovery capacity so you know, maybe they have, maybe they could squeeze out 12 hours of total training time, but, you know, are they able to recover from that and, and do that, do that repeatedly, you know, week, week after week, month after month on a consistent basis, maybe in, in that example, you know, training 10 hours a week and then having a little bit more recovery, recovery time might be the way that that athlete you know, imp- improves more. So, so, you know, trying to sometimes get across that slightly, um, contradictory idea that resting a little bit more might actually be the way to get uh to, to get to get faster or to get to get more powerful um is perhaps one of the things that we tend to find we're implementing uh more often than not and last but certainly not least we have a clip with uh, andrew sellers from episode 361 this was an episode that got a lot of great feedback particularly among the technically minded and the physiology nerds and for good reason it was definitely one of my absolute favorite episodes of the year Uh, i'll play two clips from this interview one on how to use testing to assess limitations and plan training interventions with specific uh, case studies and the other one on how the respiratory system can be a limiter that we don't really think of much and talk about much after doing this interview i actually told myself that i have to start learning more about this topic respiratory training and the respiratory system as a potential limiter sadly i have been extremely busy and i just haven't gotten around to it yet but i am still in contact with andrew and we might actually be able to get together and uh, do some work on this discuss this uh, in this year so there might be some follow-up episodes as well from then fingers crossed we can make it happen either way hope you enjoy this one uh, again really interesting physiology related episode with andrew a good example uh cross-induced cross gear so they come they come to us for testing because they're having some performance limitation their coaches their coach has found that they look like they ski really well they have good technique 
they're in a short sprint, they're able to ski as fast as anybody else on, on the hill, but they get into a race and they're, they're struggling to keep up in a, in a 10 K race. This is a junior athlete. And so at the time, um, we were limited to testing, uh, somewhere. And this comes down to what is actually, what are you actually testing? So from a physiologic perspective, and this is, um, in our ideal world, we would test them on skis. But this is off. This athlete's training off season, so we don't have access to snow. We don't have access to a, a, a really expensive uh, a skate mill, so we can't put them on a on an indoor workout that that simulates the work that they're doing. So we're now looking, trying to find the physiologic limitation that that athlete might have that would that would prevent them from performing on an endurance event on the snow the next winter. So. Um, we tested that athlete both running and cycling. They were doing cycling as a, as an off season sport, but we looked at both their running and their cycling performance to see if we could identify physiologic limitations. And what became clear for that athlete is they had two limitations. One, they had a heart rate that went exceedingly high very early in the test. So even at very low intensities, their heart rate was already stimulated to overbeat what we expected. So it identified that they had a very small heart that had to beat very quickly in order to provide the cardiac output that they needed for performance. So they had structurally a small heart. The second problem that they had is one of the things that was driving that was an exceedingly high respiratory frequency. So they also weren't making proper use of their diaphragm and, and using their lungs. So with two very simple uh, interventions that were focused on cardiac development and respiratory diaphragm usage they shifted their training through the rest of the summer and had a much better performance the following winter with ability to sustain long intervals on skis with lower heart rates and slower breathing patterns uh, and i don't think that coach ever would have figured that out they would have just kept pushing them harder and harder and harder uh, to try and overcome what was a perceived um, inability to tolerate uh, high intensities for long periods of time for a 10k race and unfortunately i think that would have burnt that athlete out and the and somebody would have told that athlete that they just didn't have what it would take to be performing at a high level so the initial studies were done on people with known breathing problems but then the theory came out that well if if people with asthma have a problem what happens in people who don't have asthma do they have a limitation so uh, the very the first very simple test um, I, it was not Spengler. The first one, I'm trying to remember who did the very first respiratory, um, test. It was a fascinating test. So what they did was they, they took an isocapnic breathing bag, basically a glorified paper bag. And they had, they had cyclists breathe as hard and fast as they could for five minutes. And then they put them on a, on a, on a ergometer and had them cycle at a 20 minute time trial. And nobody could hit the same numbers after breathing hard for five minutes. And they all just said, I can't, I can't ride my bike. I'm too tired from breathing. Hmm. And that became the, the fundamental basis for all the studies that came after that is why are they, why are they struggling on a time trial? If all we did was challenge their breathing is because breathing is a limit. It can be a limiting factor to performance. And that's the, if you remember that, that, most of the work of, of high intensity breathing is that should be done by the diaphragm. 
but it's just a, it's just a skeletal muscle. It's a slow twitch. It's primary. It's a hundred percent slow twitch muscle fibers. The additional muscles, when you breathe really hard, intercostal muscles, abdominal muscles, uh, interscalenes, uh, scalenes, uh, and sternocleidomastoid, all fatigue, just like any other muscle does. And if you need to support fast breathing because of the high intensity of the of the activity you're doing, and those muscles are already fatigued, you can't keep up with the elimination of CO2, and then your physiology falls apart because you're producing more acid and you can't eliminate the CO2 and your pH goes out of whack and then you sh- your body shuts down because you can't maintain the physiologic homeostasis without the breathing muscles. Mm. So it's very simple to see that if you if you fatigue the muscles, they don't work as well. Yeah. And then the next part is if you train the muscles, can you actually get better? And the answer is, of course you can. They're skeletal muscles. So if you train them to be better, then then you won't have that as a limitation anymore. And there we go. I hope that you enjoyed that uh, list of highlights from 2022. And uh, yeah, I hope that you enjoyed uh, listening to that triathlon show throughout the year. Of course, uh, there are many other episodes that could have made this list. I actually had quite a few others picked out that I felt like this was a really good episode and I really want to include something from it. But then I started putting the episode together and I realized that it was already getting quite long. So so I just had to had to limit it to, to a few fewer episodes than i had maybe initially hoped to do because at the same time i didn't want to include uh super short clips or some of the clips that i that i included it didn't make any sense to shorten them because then you would leave half of the part out so they just had to be a bit longer but uh, you can find the show notes as usual on scientifictriathlon.com and you can find links to all of these episodes in full if you want to check them out and before we finish for today i also want to remind you to check out our training camp in mallorca coming up at the end of march uh, you can find all the information on our website scientifictriathlon.com and you can of course email me directly if you want to talk more about it learn more about what we'll do it will be an amazing week of training in a cycling paradise so you don't want to miss this opportunity uh, to come and train with us uh, talk with us coaches from scientific triathlon train with a bunch of like-minded people and build some great fitness and uh, readiness for your 2023 season finally big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that you can find on precision fuel hydration.com use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid electrolyte and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further use the code tts23 at checkout for 15 percent off your first order and thank you to form that you can find on formswim.com forward slash tts improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace stroke rate and heart rate and advanced post swim analysis use the code tts15 to get 15 percent off the form smart swim goggles thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving craft long